Father, thank you for the good news of your son, the good news of who he is, what he has done, who we are in him. Help us to hear something of that again this morning. Open our ears to it. Give us hearts that understand it and especially give us lives that walk in it. In him I pray, amen. Please be seated. You may be an ambassador to England or to France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yeah, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Most of us have probably heard those words before. That's from Bob Dylan's famous song, Gotta Serve Somebody. Wrote it in 1979. I imagine I even felt myself wanting to sing that to you in a (laughs) raspy Dylan voice. Well, that's a bad idea. (laughs) Especially thinking about how many cigarettes I'd have to smoke (laughs) to really do that well. One of the things you might not know is that about this song is that when Dylan wrote this, he was actually riffing off of an old comedy act that was very popular during the day. Uh, It was an act by Bill Saluga, uh, a.k.a. Ray J. Johnson, that he references actually at the end of the song. It was a really popular shtick back in the 70s. Careful how you say that word. Uh, But that wasn't the only thing uh, Dylan was riffing off of. He was riffing off of, of course, an ancient text that at this time, at least, he was reading chapters of every day. Of course, that text was the Bible, the scriptures. And he was certainly inspired by passages from Paul, like what we heard this morning in in Paul's letter to the Roman church, especially in chapter 6, which is what we are going to look at today, verses 12 to 23. The following is a verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? So the contrast here for Paul is you're either serving sin or righteousness. You're presenting yourself either to one or the other, and this is Of course, hard imagery, slave imagery is hard for us in this point in history to imagine with and engage with, I think more so than uh, people in Paul's day. But the main idea Paul is trying to get at is that you are either presenting yourself as in you're presenting yourself as someone who belongs to and obeys either this or belongs to and obeys that, either sin in this regard, or righteousness. Now, in the larger biblical story, the one, of course, who stands behind sin would be Satan, and the one who stands behind righteousness would be the Lord. So, so Paul and Dylan, they're, they're basically singing the same song, so to speak. You gotta serve something or somebody, either sin or righteousness, Satan, the devil, or the Lord. But Paul, he goes further than Dylan in this song. He 
highlights, or his passage, he highlights the consequences of this either or. So one service results in corruption, constriction, death, and the other one results in uh, liberty, in righteousness, in newness of life, eternal life, the life of eternity that we can start to participate in even now in this age. So basically, you've got to serve somebody or something. You better be careful who or what that is because one's going to liberate you for life and one's going to kill you. So choose wisely. Now, if we zoom out even further, we're going to notice Paul is answering in this chapter a very specific question. A question that usually comes up at some point when the gospel, the grace of the gospel is presented. When it's really presented. In fact, if this question never comes up, you've got to ask, is the gospel being really preached? And he asks this question twice. Once at the beginning of the chapter and then in the middle. We heard last week, the one at the beginning, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may increase? And then again in the middle, what then should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? So basically, does living by grace mean we're just free to sin? We've got a a license to sin, so to speak. Does it mean we might even sin a little more just to make much highlight God's grace somehow? So leading up to this chapter, Paul, he's been talking about not only how God forgives us in Jesus, he's been talking about how God justifies us in Jesus how he declares us to be in the right, righteous, just. Before we have done anything righteous or just. So in the words of Tim Keller, he gives us the verdict before the performance. Which in New England, that's, that's a scandalous idea. <laughs> yeah. Can't imagine doing that for your PhD. (laughs) Give me the verdict before I've done anything. Not only that, though, not only does he give us the good verdict before the performance, he gives us the best verdict we could ever get after a terrible performance. He justifies the ungodly. In Christ, he gives you a, you are dead to sin, alive to God verdict. He gives you, you are a beloved child of God in whom I am well pleased, verdict. When in fact, in many ways, you've done the opposite. He gives you the verdict before the performance. It's shocking, it's scandalous, and it's the best deal you're going to get on planet Earth, ever. Now when people first hear this, really hear this, It's not surprising that people start to ask, so wait a minute. Does this grace mean sin doesn't matter anymore? Does that mean we can just continue living in it? Maybe we have similar questions. Doesn't just this promote passivity, laziness, more sin in people's lives? So how should we respond to these questions? Well, if we read Paul especially Romans 6, we answer with him, 
absolutely not. That is a misunderstanding of grace. So this takes us back when we started Romans a couple of months ago, uh, when we were looking at those early chapters and I listed out those different definitions, understandings of grace that John Barclay helpfully uh, lays out in his re recent books on Paul and grace. One of those definitions, one of those understandings of grace is the incongruity of grace. This looms large in Paul, uh, especially in the book of Romans. This is about the correspondence, or rather the lack of correspondence, between the gift and the recipient. Okay, so for example, the good things God gives to us, especially in the gospel, are not at all related to the moral worthiness of the one receiving it. God justifies the ungodly. The gift is not a match, but a mismatch. And it's hard for understand, us to stand how unusual this is, exceptional this is in the history of the world. It's more normal to us now to think of grace in that way, but that's only because the gospel has added influence on our culture and on our thinking. If you think that's how grace should be, that's because the gospel has informed you. Outside of the gospel, that is not the normal way to think about grace. You only give grace, you only give good things to those who deserve it, not to those who don't deserve it. So this is really different. This is something unique about the gospel in the world. Another definition, understanding of grace, is that it should not be reciprocal. It should be non-reciprocal. So this is about motivation. In order for it to be a true gift in this understanding, I should not expect any response, any return, any relationship from this gift. This is supposedly the pure gift, the pure way of giving a gift. But according to Barclay and others, this is a modern idea of grace that has discernible beginnings about 500 years ago with Martin Luther. It was developed further with Immanuel Kant, if you read him. And then it was given a, a fuller and final expression with Jacques Derrida in this idea of the pure gift, which interestingly enough, he thought was impossible. <laughs> Before this development though, it would have been a foreign concept in, in the world and even in the Bible to say that if you were to expect any return, that somehow was wrong or deficient or sinful in some way. It's just not automatically wrong. It wasn't automatically wrong in people's minds. Like it is sometimes in our day. Now certainly you can give gifts and expect a response and desire something from that gift giving in more corrupt and less corrupt, more noble and loving ways. So if you give a gift, so to speak, in order to bribe someone or manipulate somebody, that obviously is sinful, that's wrong. That's an inappropriate way of, of giving gifts. But what if you wanna give a gift because you desire a friendship with somebody? Should you feel sinful, wrong about that? Is that an impure gift? Simply because you want a friendship from someone? Well, 
prior to 500 years ago, people would say, no, obviously not. That's how gifts work. work. Gifts are reciprocated, and it's okay to expect that reciprocation and, and desire things from people, even in gift-giving. What Parkley highlights and others is that this started to develop actually 500 years ago with Luther in order to protect and promote the incongruity of grace. So it had a good desire. It was meant to protect that, to promote that. But what happened over time is a new understanding of grace emerged, one that says you shouldn't expect anything in return. So that when we read Paul now, when many of us read Paul, and we hear him talking about God's grace, these things God is giving to us freely, and then things God also expects from us in that grace, so that he gives us these good gifts we don't deserve, and then he also expects us to respond to those gifts and that grace with thankfulness, with faith, with a new way of living. Some people think, man, Paul, was he just confused about grace? Is he full of contradictions? No. I think what's more likely is we are confused. (laughs) We are full of contradictions when it comes to grace. We are fuzzy. And the more I talk to people, the more I hear people are fuzzy when it comes to what grace actually is. And in fact, what we're doing is imposing foreign ideas onto the Bible, onto Paul, that weren't there to begin with. If there's any chapter in the New Testament that counters this idea of grace, it's this one, Romans chapter 6. At the beginning of the chapter, we heard Paul say, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may increase? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? That's a misunderstanding of grace. And even notice how he counters that thinking. He counters it by talking about highlighting who you are, what's true about you, what grace says about you. It should make you lead a different life. So by, grace of God, by the grace of God, we're not just forgiven in Christ. Again, we're justified in Christ. We are declared to be in the right, righteous a beloved child of God in whom God is well pleased. To live by that grace is to live according now to that identity, that just verdict of you. We heard later, this, we heard this morning, therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey their desires. No longer present your members as the members of your body to sin as instruments of, righteous, of unrighteousness. By God's grace, that's no longer what your body means anymore. That's no longer who you are. Don't think of yourself or your body in that way anymore. But rather, present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In Christ, that is who you are. That is how you should be thinking about yourself. That is how you should be living. Present your members, again, the members of your body, now to God as instruments of righteousness. That is now the new meaning of your body. That is what your body is for. That is who you are. For sin will now have no dominion over you, 
since you are not under law, but under grace. So to be under grace means you are no longer someone dominated by sin. That is no longer who you are. If you're thinking about yourself in that way, you're not thinking about yourself according to the gospel. Paul goes on, what then? Should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. And then he goes on to to highlight more the consequences of sin we talked about earlier. So that giving yourself to sin as if we belong to it, as if we had no choice but to obey it, that's not only contrary to who you are in Christ, that is death and will only lead to death. That is true of sin, whether you're a Christian or not. A colleague of mine used to say, grace reigns and sin matters. Sin matters and grace reigns. Sin matters because whether you're a Christian or not, it will poison your life. It will destroy and ruin your relationships. There's another saying, a common saying that says, hey, you know what? You're only human. And you say it to someone because, hey, they've been weak in some way or they've failed in some way. That's common to everybody else, how everybody else is weak or fails. And so you shouldn't feel bad. That's, that's just the way it is. That's what it means to be human. Well, I don't think that should be a saying for Christians. <laughs> We're not only human. We have been baptized We have been baptized into the new human, Jesus of Nazareth. And that means we are dead to sin and alive to God. That means sin does not reign over us anymore. We're not merely human. We're in the new human. Whenever Martin Luther was tempted or tested from within or without, he used to shout out, Baptizatus sum. Probably not saying that correctly. (laughs) It might sound like a a magical spell from Harry Potter, but actually it's just Latin for, I have been baptized. That's what he would say. He wrote that actually in chalk on his desk to remind himself that he was a baptized believer. He had been put into Jesus, who he had been crucified with. He is someone who is dead to this sin that he's being tempted with at that moment. The very sin he's encountering. Knowing, yes, sin has a great power, but now under grace, he is under a greater power. That's what we should say to ourselves, right? When we are tested, we should say that to ourselves, to the devil if we need to, mostly to God in prayer when we're presented with something wrong before us. No, I have been baptized in Christ. That's not the true me. I've died to that in Jesus. That's what we need to say to ourselves or the devil or to God in prayer when we've succumbed to sin, when we're confronted with our own moral failure. We need to point to that and say, No, that's not the true me. And that very moment is actually when you're most tempted to say, huh, this is me. This is the true me. That's not the true you in Jesus. 
That's the false you. That has been crucified already. Jesus has already died for that particular sin you just committed. And in him you are already dead to it and alive to God. Say that truth. Walk in that truth. It's something to say not just when we're in failure, not just when we're trying to resist sin, but when we want to motivate ourselves to do what is right, what is just, what is true. Yes, I have been baptized in Jesus. In him I have done and I do the right thing. I'm going to walk in that because that's who I am. Is that how you imagine yourselves? We get the verdict before the performance. That's the incongruity of grace. But we are given that grace so that we would start living a new performance, one that actually matches the verdict. That's the power of the gospel. We're given that grace, that verdict, so that we would start believing it, actually believing that verdict and start walking in that. So we hear, in Jesus, you are justified. In Jesus, you belong to and obey what is right, what is real life. And you say, yes, I believe that. I'm going to walk in that. You hear, in Jesus, you are dead to corruption. You are alive to our Father. You have been brought out of disintegration and into fullness. You are a son and a daughter of God, the living God, in whom he is well pleased. You hear that and you say, yes, I believe that. I'm going to walk in the newness of that because I have been baptized into the new human, Jesus of Nazareth. May it be so. Amen.